This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Pia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is the second episode of a four-part series dedicated to the discussion of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the tokenization of assets. We move into the nuts and bolts of blockchain, decentralized ledgers, and why it matters with our guest, Avi Spielman. Avi is the founder and president of June Properties, and he has become well known as a translator between the two industries of real estate and blockchain. With a background in real estate, Avi was attending MIT to receive his master's in real estate development when he became involved in the school's digital currency initiative. Soon after, he found himself preparing a thesis on the intersection of real estate and blockchain, and he's been an active pioneer in the space ever since. During our conversation, Avi defines the fundamental features of blockchain as an innovative technology, emphasizing its decentralized nature around trust and trustless transactions, and analyzes the effect it is already having on our existing systems, services, and marketplaces. We talk about blockchain explained in simple terms, how blockchain forgoes the need for central authority accessibility of this technology around the globe and how it's being used to raise socioeconomic status in other countries. Other key insights are the way that existing services are being reinvented to become more accessible and efficient, the institutionalization of cryptocurrencies, and what we can expect in terms of growth and expansion of blockchain in the coming years. With an eye to the future, Avi gives us a final example of a fully integrated framework using blockchain, AI, and IoT, the Internet of Things, which is a premonition of what's to come. All right, Avi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Yeah, we're really looking forward to this episode. It's the second in our blockchain cryptocurrency education series. And, you know, let's like dive right in because you have a real estate background and you've become known as the, I would say the translator between two different industries, but would love to, to hear from you. How did you become this role? Like what, what made you so passionate about the, the blockchain coming out of real estate? Absolutely. It was almost a little bit about just you know, fortuitous timing and coincidence. I was already matriculating to MIT for some grad work. I got a master's of science in real estate development and at the uh, real estate program there. And 
while I was there, a, a few friends of mine from other industries were also matriculating there for the digital currency initiative, which they were opening up at the MIT Media Lab. And being in that type of institution, it's very collaborative between schools. And there was a professor at the Sloan School who said, okay, we're going to put together a blockchain working group. And one of my friends was a uh, part of the engineering school. And I had another friend over at the, uh, the Sloan School of Business. And they were like, why don't you come and check it out? And I came and checked it out. And uh, they were like, great. So here are all the different projects we're going to work on. And I'm looking around and said, okay, who's working on real estate and blockchain? And they said, you are. Congratulations. And I was like, okay, fantastic. And you know what I come to, so I ended up writing my thesis on the intersection of real estate and blockchain. And that thesis really talked primarily about using blockchain as a method for recording real estate title. And we'll get a little bit into that when we start delving deeply into the intersection of blockchain and real estate. But over time, what I realized was that there were a lot of people in the real estate world, which is historically, I would say, almost allergic to new technology until the last five years, right? But in the grand scheme of things, typically, you know, they were adverse to technology and change. You know, they were looking for someone who spoke real estate to talk about blockchain. And the blockchain industry was looking for somebody who spoke real estate to speak to them about real estate. And so that sort of became my little corner of the world of the blockchain and real estate universe. Wow. That is quite a story to, to, to get here, especially like being so early at MIT Media Lab. That must have been just so exciting to be at the, at the forefront of all of this development. Absolutely. You know, it's one of those things about nascent technologies. I mean, they've been coming along for years and years and years and years. And, you know, a lot of blockchain in its adolescence, and I would imagine it's still really, I would say, in its adolescence, happens like the, the advent of the internet, where, you know, there have been people working on this now for well over a decade, but it's still considered something that is relatively very, very new. And I would say the majority of people are becoming familiar with it through various different outlets within the media and technology and investment groups just like yours where it's really just coming onto the mainstream radar, uh, really thanks to, to people like you guys. Well, I would say th- thanks to you. We'll see if we can, we, we can convince internally to do some, some tokenization, but maybe by the end of this episode, we, we can have that conversation internally. But like, let's start with, let's start with the basics. You know, what, I mean, everything is built on a digital ledger on a blockchain. So what, what does that even mean? What's a blockchain? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think the first thing is when we talk about these things, you know, people want to start with the idea of Bitcoin. I think that's probably the most well-known term, or we're going to call it a term for this case, right? Where have you heard of blockchain? I'd say now more people than a year ago, definitely more people than two years ago. I've said, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Um, But if you said Bitcoin, I think a lot of people know what Bitcoin is at this stage in the game. And, you know, they may not know what it is or how it works, but they've definitely heard the term. And I think blockchain, similarly to Bitcoin, is one of those things that if you didn't hear about it, once you hear it for the first time, you're going to see it everywhere. Right? Suddenly it's like, you know, everyone's doing it. You see it uh, with all of your articles and news and things like that. So blockchain sort of became into prominence thanks to Bitcoin, because when Bitcoin came out as a currency, everyone was like, wow, this is going to change the world. This is amazing. And then a few people said, yeah, this currency is pretty cool. But this underlying ledger technology for which we record these transactions with this currency, that's actually really interesting. So let's dig a little deeper into that. So at the end of the day, what is a blockchain? It is a distributed ledger, 
Like that's it. We're done. We, we can literally just end the conversation right there, right? Boom. You got all the knowledge you need to know about blockchain. It gets a little bit more complicated when we try to think about like, how does it actually work? And why is it important? Like, why is it innovative? So essentially a blockchain as a distributed ledger has a network of nodes. And think of nodes in this case as a computer or as simply as participants within the network. And a copy, because it's digital, a copy of that ledger lives on every node connect, connected to the network. And because it's digital, all of those nodes can sync simultaneously and they'll use a, a protocol, an established consensus system, established set of rules to sync through the work of what they call competing miners. And as it reconciles, all these miners are following these established rules to create a block of data. And every time they create that block of data, once that information has been verified and that block is formed, they add it to all of the previous blocks of data, creating a chain of blocks. Ergo, block chain. So that's sort of the idea of how blockchain as a technology uh, works. Now, what's interesting is everyone says to me, okay, that's really interesting. I wanna know more. And then I usually say to them, okay, great. How does the internet work? And they look at me like, what do you mean? I was like, well, do you use the internet all the time? And they're like, yeah, of course. I was like, great, do you know how the internet works? They're like, yeah, there's like code and stuff and, and protocols and things like that. And you're like, absolutely. I was like, so I think from a high level perspective, the basic idea is that it's a distributed ledger that is reconciled using a consensus system by com competing nodes and participants. And over time, you know, they create a block of data added to a chain blockchain for the sake of any conversations that we care about with regard to real estate, I say at that point, let's presume that it works. Let's just presume that everything that we're talking about with regard to blockchain is a system that is functional and does make sense. Because beyond that, it gets super technical. And you know, it's typically where I start to lose people. And not so much these people here in this conversation, but you know, the, in the general public idea of what do I really want to know to make things important is that it's a distributed ledger. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this though is really why, why is that important? Why do we care, right? Because a lot of, most of the technology comprised within a blockchain is not innovative or new, right? Encryption has been around for a long time. Cryptography has been around for a very long time, you know, since people wanted to send messages and they didn't want other people to know what they are. And that dates back to the beginning of mankind and, and, and battles. So what is the true innovation? Why do we care about blockchain? And I think the answer to that question is it removes the need for a central authority, right? And removing the need for a central authority, that's really where the cool stuff happens that people are excited about. So if you right. guys are open so, to it. So I was going to oh, say, yeah, that was where I was going to go. I was going to kind of say like, what's this whole decentralization, centralization? Like, that's like a big word out there. We have DeFi, which is the yep. decentralized finance. And some people might be following that, but I'm pretty sure wherever you were just about to go was where I was, where, uh, where I was going to. So, I mean, it's, that's a big thing. Like there's a lot of, you know, if we think about what's going on in the world right now, there's a lot of mistrust of pretty much any kind of institution. And at least in the digital realm, my understanding of all of this is we're trying to make it so that not one single person or authority or group of people that have a lot of power and authority can uh, essentially make decisions that affect you know, multitudes of, of people. So it, it's the decentralization of power as well. That's my understanding of it. And then done in this way, you know, is this about 
like equality, like what, what is it, you know, what is it really about? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, and I think that's really what brought this into prominence. With Bitcoin, it was with the collapse of the 2008 financial market. You know, people were like, you know what, how come I don't really have control over my money? Right. And so what, so yeah, so I mean, what we were proposing is to play this game that I call the trust game. When blockchain came out, they called it the trust machine. Right. So how does this all work? Right. So let's play. Can we play the trust game? Are you guys in? You ready? Yeah, I'm in. Awesome. All right. So let's say that you and I want to do some sort of commerce. Right. And back in the day, and I'm talking like pre finances, like, you know, I might have had a bushel of corn and you might have had. Uh, you know, a bushel of cotton. And I wanted some cotton and you wanted some corn and we would just barter. That was the exchange, right? And then, and then came in some sort of uh, token or finance, a coin, precious gems, some monetary value, piece of monetary value. And so it was pretty simple even then to say it cost, you know, if, I, if you wanted to, if I wanted to purchase something from you, I would give you whatever it is, an X amount of dollars. I would exchange a physical token of monetary value for you and the exchange was over, right? Now, if what if we wanted to have that same interaction, I were to give you a token of value, but that token was digital, right? It was in the form of ones and zeros, right? On the one hand, it'd be pretty easy for me to say, great, I'm gonna send you this digital token and you're gonna accept it and that's our exchange. But on a, on a simplified level, what would be to stop me from, you know, right-clicking on my computer, that token, making a hundred copies and then sending it to a hundred and different people, right? Or vice versa, you know, telling, you know, you telling me that, you know, I never received this token, you know, or you taking that token and copying and sending it to 15 other people. So at that point, we need a trusted third party, okay? Let's call him Dan for the sake of this example, right? So we got Dan, he's our trusted third party. And Dan is going to keep track of this digital token. He's going to say, Avi gave that digital token to Adapia, and Adapia gave that digital token back to Dan, uh, and I'm going to record that on my ledger. And everything is golden, right? No, of course not, because we don't like Dan. We don't trust Dan. You know, Dan what, if, what if Dan wants to start charging us fees, right? What if Dan decides that, um, you know what, in, in exchange for his work, that, you know, he's actually going to you know, erase the things under Avi's ledger and change them all around. And that's really what we're sort of seeing right now with the banking systems, right? The centralized banking systems. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this issue. In my personal life, I can actually tell you a situation where the bank has actually deposited funds into the wrong account, where I've deposited a check and it's gone into somebody else's account, right? You're essentially relying on your bank for being that authority over all of your debits and credits. Right. And so they're maintaining that ledger. So a lot of people are like, well, that's an issue because what if the bank gets too powerful? And I'm not trying to pick on the banking system, but it could be any central authority, it could be a government, so forth and so on. So what happens if they get too powerful? They have all the power. Well, what if we decided to change that trust system? What if instead of the bank holding the ledger, instead of me holding the ledger, because if I held the ledger originally in our original example between you and I, you know, then I can make those changes and said, well, I actually paid her twice as much. But if you held the ledger, you can say Avi never paid me, right? So you can't hold the ledger, I can't hold the ledger. And let's say this trusted third party, which is how we pretty much transact now, we don't trust them to hold the ledger, what are we supposed to do? So in the case of blockchain, what they're saying is, what if all three of us held the ledger? What if we each had that ledger 
And we each got all the information at the same time. And we followed a set of rules that we were predetermined set of rules that we all agreed upon to come to a conclusion of reconciliation at the end of every transaction. That would be pretty trustworthy to the extent that as long as all of our answers, our results came out to be the same, we knew the ledger was accurate and correct, right? Now, it does work, that, that's the basic concept, but now we're only a network of three people, right? And that network of three people is only as strong as the majority. So if for whatever reason, you two decided, you know what? We're gonna go, we're gonna screw Avi this month for whatever reason, you know, you know, he didn't play well and pick up basketball this week. And so we're gonna go in and we're gonna tell Avi and we're gonna erase, you know, something with regarding, you know, what his transaction was and we're gonna change it. Because we're the majority, you know, we can do that. So the network concept works, but it doesn't work when we only have three nodes. We only have three points of contact, right? But imagine that ledger was then distributed to 3 million people or 300 million people or 3 billion people. That network is quite robust. And when people start talking about transparency, security, all these benefits that come with blockchain, it's really at a mat when it gets to a massive scale. Because if I'm a hacker, for example, and I said to myself, well, in order for me to hack this blockchain, I'm going to need to change the ledgers on you know, the majority of 3 billion different computers you know, versus focusing all my attention onto a centralized authority, like one mainframe of a bank or one registrar of a government. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend my time doing what's easier for me. And it's gonna be way easier for me to focus on that centralized authority than try to do it with this gl massive global network. Of, of nodes. And so that's added security. And because every one of us has a copy of that ledger and it's the same ledger being updated in real time, it's transparent because we all know the information that's being added. We all know the information that's being reconciled and we can go back and check it because we all have the same records. So that's really how it became this idea of it being a trust machine. And there are potentially huge, huge benefits to that, you know, especially in, you know, from a humanitarian perspective in developing countries in the world. So let me ask you how you think about the chicken egg problem that kind of exists, right? Because people today, you know, they, for the most part, do trust the dollar, they trust their banks, that's what we use, right? And we're saying, hey, there's a system where there can be more transparency and more trust, but you got to go through this period where nobody really knows what it is or understands it. And trust us on the other end of it, like it's going to be better for you. How do you, how do you think like at a philosophical level, how do we get to the place, you know, we're ultimately going? Totally, totally. And there are a couple of ways that we could sort of carve this up, right? Like the first way is to say, okay, how do we adopt this into our, you know, certain existing services, right? Where is the low hanging fruit? Something that may not, you know, completely revolutionize the way that we operate and do business, but could benefit from something like this. Uh, but I think on the other side of that coin that you're asking is like, do we need it? And that's a really big question. I think that's a wonderful transition into the idea of how it might play into real estate, right? So that, that low hanging fruit that I was talking about is the existing services, right? That's the simplest form of adoption. And really for us, a consumer, nothing really changes, right? If there's a service, the service doesn't change. If there's a functionality, the functionality doesn't change. And for us, a user experience may not change. 
right? But if they implement a blockchain, they might have the benefits of the transparency and security, things like that. So, you know, uh, a sort of mainstream example would be if iTunes decided to record all of their transactions on a blockchain, right? As a consumer, our experience using iTunes would, would not change. We would just log into iTunes, we'd buy, you know, the Harry Potter eight DVD, you know, eight disc DVD set or whatever it is that we're buying on iTunes. And on the back end, you know, a blockchain is being used to record that. From a real estate perspective, you know, I really look toward it as the low-hanging fruit, something like recording real estate title. And recording a real estate title is a really interesting facet because, and there's an argument to be made that like within the United States, we could use it in some areas. You know, there are many parts of rural America where title is still recorded in a filing cabinet on, in a folder with a piece of paper and a pen. And, you know, that next iteration of technology step up is going to be like a spreadsheet, like literally an Excel spreadsheet where people are keeping track of information for title. And of course, as you get to the more densely populated areas, you know, you're going to start having people who are using services that are being provided, software providers, or maybe they even built a robust database themselves, right? Now, to that, to that extent, it would make sense that we would want to have some sort of universal database, Right. And there are people out there who are trying to build a universal or a national database in the United States to try to make it more fluid to conduct business with real estate within the United States. Now, well, so, the so, so Avi, I was going to say, actually, along those lines, like it would affect my experience, right? Like I just bought a home. I, I yep. know what I went through with title yeah. and closing and needing to spend an extra week in an Airbnb because there was some miscommunication because the lenders were so busy, you know, whatever that would have a direct impact on my experience on speed, which is so important, especially in high volume transactions, which, you know, it seems like there's going to continue to be high volume transactions with, with real estate. So, you know, like you said, like maybe in the, in the case of iTunes, it doesn't change my experience. But in the case of real estate, we could probably make a case for it absolutely changing our experience. Totally. Absolutely. And, and first of all, congratulations on your, on your new home. And yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that there, and there are definitely counties, a big part of it in the United States is legislation based, right? You have to allow for this type of record keeping to be approved, right? To be recognized you know, like a digital stamp, for example, to be recognized as, as proof of ownership. Totally. But relative to the rest of the world, as difficult and as frustrating as I am very confident that experience was for you, you can still conduct real estate rather expeditiously, right? All things considered, right? And to, to the point that you both are making, it only helps if everyone uses it, almost by definition, right? Because a blockchain is only as strong as how many nodes are connected to it. By definition, the new technology is only as, as good as how many people are actually using that technology, right? And so I, I sort of used a Segway example. Are you guys familiar with Segway? You know, that sort of like scooter, stand-up yeah. scooter. So yeah. when you think of a Segway, like, what do you think about? Like, who uses Segways? Any thoughts? Tour exactly. <laughs> Tourists and mall cops, right? Like, those are the two <laughs> groups of people that use Segways. Now, there's no doubt that the Segway was like a true innovation. And when you had some of the greatest minds of our time, like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates investing tens of millions of dollars of their personal funds and company funds into this product, that they really truly believed it was gonna revolutionize the way that people transported themselves. But ultimately people said, you know what? 
I really like walking. You know, <laughs> like I don't mind walking. And, and so it's sort of, even though this was like a better technology, it only works if people adapt, it, right? And they adopt it. And so that's sort of where blockchain is right now. So that, and it's funny because like there are both ends of the spectrum, right? There was, I think $4.4 billion invested in blockchain startups in last quarter alone, right? Record high, $4.4 billion and on the one hand. On the other hand, it's like this thing only works if people use it. Right now, to your earlier point, like with regard to developing nations, there are way more significant ramifications, in particular with real estate and blockchain. Right. And if you'd like, we can we can go a little bit into that, too. Yeah, because you, you did kind of mention and I know I, I talked about this on the last on the last episode with, with Adam about, you know, it's maybe a little bit different, but like what was going on with that in Afghanistan and the ability of like the cri- cryptocurrency was the only, you know, currency of, of any kind that was able to get through. And actually, as, as far as I understand it, and please, like Africa is leading in blockchain adoption in the the financial sector and in the real estate sector. That's my understanding. So yeah, I would love for you to elaborate on that. Absolutely. And it's all the points you just mentioned. I mean, a big part of this is accessibility. There's a a famous Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto. And really in his seminal work, he talks about how the best way for somebody to raise their economic status is through leveraging their most valuable asset which you know, 99.99% of the time is gonna be somebody's land, right? And the issue is within developing or you know, really war-torn countries is how do you have accurate records? Like maybe I'm an, an indigenous person and I've, my family has lived or my people have lived on the land for generations, hundreds or thousands of years, who knows? But maybe I've never been to a bank before or maybe I've never been to a, a government office before. And that government office is hundreds of miles away. I might not even have a car, but to the point of what was happening to what you were saying before with regard to Afghanistan, with regard to Africa, you know what they all have? They all have smartphones and they all have access to information like in the palm of their hands. Now that's a generalization, but the majority of people, this you know, statistics show have access to some sort of smartphone. So if I can use a blockchain as a method for recording my title, on my phone and I can use that as a, I can leverage that also on my phone to access banking institutions. And I can use the equity within my home and land, which I may not have had any access to before as a way of investing in my kids' education, in my business, you know, whatever it might be to raise my socioeconomic. And in the very early eight days of of blockchain, you saw a lot of headline articles that said stuff like blockchain is going to end poverty, right? And it's like, what does that mean? Like, how, how could you say, like, what is that talking about? That's what they're talking about. They're talking about having another tool in their, in their toolbox to help raise their economics, their socioeconomic status. And blockchain is one of those tools that people believe can, can still do that, can, can continue to do that. Um, yeah. So from an existing services standpoint, I mean, that's sort of the both the the capitalism and the humanitarianism side. But things get a little bit more interesting as we continue to go down this rabbit hole uh, when we start talking about like reimagining existing services. And I think those have a lot more applications here in the United States as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was I was just trying, I was thinking about like what are these services that that are being reimagined and 
I think what's really fascinating about the whole thing is that where it starts is like blockchain as a distributed ledger, it's just this base layer. And then there's so much that is really getting built up around this concept that is applied, but it, it just blossoms and it mushrooms, you know, it just, it's like a mycelium network. It's just like, there's so much that's going on that that's building on, on top of it. So, so yeah, I was thinking like, what are, you know, what are these existing services that are being reimagined? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and when we talk about reimagining services, as opposed to existing services, I think, you know, what we're really talking about is to your point earlier is making things more efficient, more fluid, more accessible. Right. And the areas that really come to mind quickly are things like crowdfunding, things like uh, redistribute areas, fractional ownership of property, you know, things that have been around. It's not necessarily a new mousetrap. Right. They've been around before. But because of the way that the markets have operated historically, they may not have been really uh, easily or readily accessible to the everyday person. And you know, if you start integrating a blockchain technology and people who are familiar with it will have things like a digital wallet, well, then it makes it really easy to, to put the access in the palm of your hand. And you, know, you can now use this technology as well as some of the benefit, other benefits like smart contracts to create really a very robust environment. Are you guys, so smart contract, I think- sorry. Exactly, I was gonna say, no, no, I was gonna say like, you know, What's a smart contract? Like, like it be because it, 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 this is to be, that's the mechanism by which this trust is built in a way as well, which is you don't have to have a middle person validating it's the contract does it for you based on set parameters. Got, yeah, exactly. And, and that's exactly what it is, right? It's a self-executing contract, right? And think of it as to say, like, if I were in Excel and I was just creating a really robust, like, what if you know, if that, you know, some, some like, you know, algorithm, right. And code. And, and so part of it is this idea that you and I can create a contract that based on certain criteria that we predetermine certain functionality will happen. It's football season, right? So like the, my favorite sort of example is like, let's say you and I were betting on the Titans and I know, I'm sure, I don't know if you're a Titans fan, but we're in, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. So we're going to jump with that if that's cool. <laughs> we can go with that. Yeah, I'm in LA. I have never heard of that team, but I'm also not a big American football fan. I'm like a football, like soccer oh. football fan. <laughs> okay, so let's go with Tottenham because that's my squad. I'm a, to I'm a big Tottenham fan. You Premier okay. League, La Liga, what are we talking about? Bundesliga? Uh, well, I mean, for, for me, it was when from my, my years and years of living in Italy, and I actually was an underwriter for, for professional uh, football league players. So wow. it, it would actually have to be um, AC Milan. Oh, wow. good thing I didn't say Juventus. I almost got <laughs> Okay, <No>. so <laughs> no, been bad. Okay, so let's say we're, we're going to put a wager on the AC Milan match, right? And I'm going to say if AC Milan scores two goals, you know, then it says scores over two goals, then, you know, the fun, I, I'm going to win this bet. And if AC Milan scores under two goals, you're going to win this bet. And if they score exactly two goals, then we each get our money back. We're going to do a push, right? And, but we're going to go even further than that, right? We're going to say that we're going to use ESPN.com as the methodology on this date, because the game starts at seven. So we're going to say the next day at two o'clock in case there are any stat corrections, you know, that at this time, we're going to use that as our source of reference to have a valid score. And we're going to wrap this all up in code. 
And what it's going to do is it's actually going to, it could take our tokens, whatever it is that we're going to wager. It's going to take our digital weight, our currency wager. It's going to roll it up into essentially a smart escrow. And it's going to hold it for us. And in this, you know, smart escrow or wallet, and then the, the program itself will check ESPN at the time that we determined, at the page that we determined to check the score. And if it was, you know, more than two goals, then it would automatically dis disperse those funds to me. If it was fewer than two goals, it would disperse it to you. And if it was a push, it would send it back to each of us, right? And, you know, when you start coupling that with the transaction side of blockchain and the recording of the ledger side of blockchain, that opens up all sorts of possibilities within the real estate industry, right? And it does make it, when you put that as a, a cog within the machine of things like crowdfunding, then it makes things very fluid, very efficient. And then on top of that, it has all those other benefits that we previously, previously spoke about because it is a blockchain, security, transparency, you know, things like that. And so when people start reimagining re existing services, that's sort of you know, the area that they're talking about. Now, there's another side to this that excites me even more because if you think about blockchain, it's a very peer-to-peer -peer protocol. Right. So it's like, remember Napster? Do you guys remember Napster? Like the music yeah. download company? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. The thing about Napster was it was a peer to peer network. Right. Like you were essentially downloading songs that other people had uploaded. And there are markets in the United States that are rather archaic with how they function and are a small piece of the pie that I think you can grow that entire pie if there was a great peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. Home equity loans comes to mind for me as something that would be really interesting to use a very secure peer-to-peer -peer market where it was a distributed ledger, so there was no centralized authority. And then you and I, just like we may be able to participate in a crowdfunding or fractional ownership of property, could participate in a fractional ownership of a home equity loan. And we would reap the benefits of, you know, of that type of interest. And that would provide way more opportunity for people looking for home equity loans to have a way bigger marketplace to find home equity loans. And I think that whole space is something that could potentially grow as an example. You would be calling it refi, right? Because there's DeFi and like, and so in a way, if we're like, you could do the same thing with, with real estate. Like, so my question is, okay, I'm going to try to find a really good way to, to say this. Cause I'm thinking of what happened in 2008. I'm thinking if yeah. blockchain had existed, there'd be no way, maybe, I don't know, could people still have created synthetics without knowing what was underneath them and would investment banks still have offered them? Could blockchain have avoided what happened sure. in 2008? I mean, it's a great question. The answer is blockchain is just a database, right? Mm -hmm. It's just holding information. So could people have maybe analyzed it to identify the problem earlier? Could, you know, we have put in additional roadblocks once, you know, said metrics indicated that there was going to be a problem? Sure. You know, but I mean, a big problem, and you can argue that because it's decentralized, you could potentially regulate it more if it was allowed to be regulated, if you allowed for that within your blockchain. Uh, a permission for regulation, right? So theoretically it could be, but I think hypothetically the problems with what happened in 2008, the problems that you would see with blockchain are the same problems that you'd see within any industry. It's, you know, the players that are involved, the people who are involved and, you know, how are they doing that? On a very basic level, you know, part of what happened with 2008 was just really 
it's an issue with our finance industry in general and how the finance industry is incentivized to operate. And, and then if there was more transparency and more regulation, you could argue then absolutely that's something that could have been avoided. And you can get that with the blockchain, you know, but is that gonna prevent nefarious people from doing nefarious things or yeah. people from making bad decisions? Definitely yeah. not, you know, yeah. in the it's very, hard to, very- It's hard to know, it's hard to know. Yeah, yeah it's always a human nature issue. And, and it's kind of like, you know, when a lot of people wanna bring up, oh, fraud and people use cryptocurrency to, you know, black market stuff and all this like, you know, fraud and whatnot. I've always thought, well, they're gonna do it. Well, A, they're first of all, they're moving most of that kind of money with cash. And B, they're gonna use their, it's a human nature issue. So until that changes, it's just going to be reapplied. Like there's always fraudsters in every single sector of any industry. And that's, that's, I don't know if that's how they operate. That's what they do. They're going to find a way to do what they do, no matter what system or what industry you put them in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And I think this goes back to the analogy with the nascent comparison between blockchain and Bitcoin and the internet. I mean, when I started off in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, you know, everyone said to me, oh, you got to be careful because that's for drug cartels and money launderers and, you know, all these nefarious actors. And I said, that's exactly what the Internet was, too. When the Internet started off, it was all, you know, drug cartels and nefarious actors and scams and frauds. And you had to be careful. And it took time for the internet to evolve into the somewhat safe space that we know today, where anyone can participate, at least in the United States, you can participate within the internet in a, in, in a feeling safe about their experience for the most part. And that's true of any nascent technology. And I think, you know, with how much money is being invested and the fact that, you know, you have so many major institutions now you know, banks, government entities, private, co private sector companies getting involved, then a lot of the Wild West that was in the beginning of this technology is being cleaned up. And it's just a natural evolution, I think, of, of new technology and innovation. It is interesting to know, on a side note here, how adaptive to technology drug cartels and like nefarious individuals really are. I mean, they're always at the like bleeding edge of technology, it seems, but that's a side note. That's another conversation for another time. Uh, so what do you think the the timeline looks like, right? So we, we talked about, you know, this stuff's been around for a while. And then, you know, in the post great, you know, recession, you started seeing a lot of movement and over the last, you know, let's just call it like six to nine months for the general public. You've seen a, a lot of this in the, in the mainstream media. What do you think the growth trajectory looks like here? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the investment growth trajectory is, is clearly marked out. I mean, it's just that sector continues to break records like almost you know, every uh, quarter with how much money is being invested into blockchain-related company. You know, There's definitely been some fads that have already come and gone. I mean, they've gone through a number of life cycles. I, I don't know if you guys were, have, remember or were familiar with ICOs and what like a initial coin offering and you know how big that was and everyone was going to do it and how huge it was and and all the companies are going to use this now and it's kind of teetered off a little bit you know and it's not really something you you read about as much as you used to and and so i think these these things have natural life cycles if i had a crystal ball and can tell you like if and when this was going to be something that we all were going to be using 
And sort of whether we knew it or not, you know, um, then, you know, we would have a very different conversation about reallocating some of the capital you guys have with regard to your investment opportunities that we should be making. But it's really hard to say. I mean, you know, to, to you know, go back to some of the stuff we've been talking about, like it really only matters if people use it, you know, and if there is truly a need for it that uh, surpasses the current existing system. And, you know, but that's a beautiful transition into, you know, where all of this might be going because blockchain is like really one technology in this like growing branching tree of technologies that are being developed right now. And I think the ultimate destination is a re-engineering of our existing systems where all of these individual technologies are going to work together. And, and I think the implications of that are, are to me, at least, I think the most exciting. And, and so yeah, what so, would some of those be? Like, what are some of the, you know, what are some of these like other, other technologies that, that are going to get integrated? Yeah. So you have stuff like um, artificial intelligence, you know, people are talking a lot about right now. Internet of things is something that you don't hear as much about, but it's been talking about for quite a while and, you know, cloud computing, um, and when you kind of look at these as cogs in a greater machine working together, uh, I like to use my, my Joe Plummer example, right? So let's say I'm, I'm Boston Properties and I own the Prudential Center in Boston, Massachusetts. The Prudential Center is like this massive island like within Boston. And the reason why I call it an island is because, you know, above the street level on the surface, you have this interconnected, you know, grounds of office buildings and retail centers and malls and things like that. And then underneath it is layers and layers of interconnected tunnels and infrastructure, right? And, you know, a casino is very similar to that, right? What you see above ground at a casino, and casinos are massive, massive properties, right? There you, you almost have the same imprint below ground. There's four or five levels below ground. And underneath it, they have shops for employees. They have offices. They've got roadways. I mean, they've got everything. And in the in the grand scheme of like a property like that, is how how do you maintain a property like that? Problem like how do you do that? Well, let's say that in the bottom darkest corner, right, of this property, there was a leak. How would you know this property is this is a small city? Like how would you know that there was a leak? Unless somebody was happened to be going down that corridor through that door and they're like, oh, what, what's going on? Or, or maybe they slipped on the ground and, you know, and they noticed a puddle of water, you know, six floors below ground that they shouldn't have noticed. And then what would they do if they found that leak? Well, they probably, if they remembered after they got back to, you know, civilization, they would, you know, call a repairman or a manager to tell them to call a repairman. And it's just not a very efficient process. So theoretically, we can take something like the Internet of Things, where you have sensors. And maybe there was a sensor on this pipe that said if there was a leak, it would identify the water. And then there was a second sensor on the floor that identified any pooling water. And then a third sensor that identified a raise in moisture in the room, right? And then that sensor could alert an artificial intelligence to say, hey, in section four, quad six, you know, behind door 83, you know, there's a leak. Now, if this was the olden days, like maybe even with just the sensor, just IoT, you know, you would see like a flashing button or you'd get an email that said, hey, there's a leak. You need to call somebody and go check it out. But when you start putting all these things together, 
Well, that sensor notified the artificial intelligence that there's a leak. And that artificial intelligence already has in their database a predetermined set of vendors. So it knows to then go and automatically identify said vendor. And not only does it, does it notify the vendor that there's a leak, it says exactly where that leak is. It's sensor 46, sensor 47, sensor 48, and quad 42, quad 53 on the second floor. And here is the access code. Use this access code to get in the door, and that's going to be your time clocking in. And when you leave, punch in the access code when you leave. And then when you, re and then when you finish the work, the sensors will reset, and that will tell us that the job's been done. And once the AI gets the message that the job's been done, it could take the record of the log of when that person logged into that door, and it could go look at their smart contract that it has with that vendor. And it says that I know that for X amount of time, I am paying them X amount of rate in this monetary value. And I can use my smart contract to take those funds, automatically disperse them to the vendor so that the plumber is paid before he even gets back to his shop. I mean, that is the ultimate goal of what people are looking for. Really, they're living cities, right? Areas where all of these properties come to life and have all these opportunity of taking actions on their own. Mm -hmm. And that's when we all join the matrix. I was going to say, I was going to say, okay, there's like this whole other like layer on top of it, which is how digitized, I mean, that would be like a whole other two hour conversation, but the, the digitization and our reliance on it. And, you know, maybe, maybe to some degree it can be concerning um, or even frightening for people to think that, yes, smart contracts and decentralization and, and trust, but there's, and there's also an, an element of if people aren't involved, you lose the human element. Right, you lose the human element. What happens if the plumber goes in, does his best, can't find the solution because he needs to come back? How is that resolved? Right, like it, there's always going to be like some some human um, some human element, which will you know hopefully we never take the human element out of it because there's so much good that can come of this and so much efficiency and, and accountability as well. Hopefully we don't lose the, the human element though. Absolutely, absolutely. Avi, so appreciate your time. You've given us so much to, to think about and, and yeah, just really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and, you know, would you like to, to tell people that are listening, you know, I know you're really busy. You do, you do your own real estate in Nashville, but you know, are you open to people contacting you or, you know, you know, what could we do to, to let people know how to, to support? You? I really appreciate that. You know, we're, Fortunately, we're, we're doing great here in Nashville, Tennessee. We've got a great business running, you know, primarily in the, not really having too much to do with blockchain on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, we're really sort of on the ground, real estate people, but mostly I'm just happy to share that information. It's so great to meet you and, and to reconnect with Dan regarding this topic. And just really appreciate you guys having me on. And it's been a pleasure to sort of uh, spread the knowledge. I mean, anything that we can do that, you know, could potentially better our markets, better our industry and better the world is something that, you know, I'm always happy to support. So just spreading the love is really what it is. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. What I like to say, the best way to support me is not to contact me. <laughs> well, I'll try to say it politely. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's this element, I mean, there's this element, I mean, when you're working, 
really hard. It's truly, I mean, it's really nice because there's a lot of like, oh, I, you know, contact me so that I can sell you something. And so just again, really appreciate that you're you're just so forthcoming and generous with with the information and giving people a lot to talk about. So thank you again so much. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.